Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 31. 1 Samuel chapter 31. We are at the end of the book of 1 Samuel. We'll be, you remember, 1 and 2 Samuel in the, in the Hebrew canon, the authoritative Old Testament scriptures. Uh, 1, and Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel is one book. We're going to be looking at 2 Samuel. Um, in my opinion, nobody asked me, but uh, the first chapter of 2 Samuel belongs in this book, but Again, no one asked me, so we have it in the next book. So we'll look at next week, 2 Samuel chapter 1, which is the lament of David's death, Jonathan's death. We'll be that uh, in chapter 2 when we go back to, to uh, Sunday um, for one service. So I'm looking forward to that. So kids, you're dismissed for Children's Church. I did not forget. I'm, what I'm going to do as the kids are leaving, I'm going to read Second Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 31. I'm going to read it now. We're going to look at it more as we get into it. But I just want... It's a, it's, a, it's a very hard chapter, very hard chapter. So I'm going to read it. It's short. It's only uh, 13 verses, and then we'll go back into it as we study it together. So hear the word, the infallible, inherent, authoritative word of God. 1 Samuel chapter 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain at Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchashua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, that's the king, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day when the Philistines came, stripped the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen at Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols to the people. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But, verse 11, when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word this morning. Remember the last time we saw Saul? He was inquiring, he, he inquired God, he asked of God what to do as the Philistines had gathered to go against him and the army of Israel at a place called Shunem. Chapter 28, verses 4 through 6. God did not answer Saul. God did not answer Saul. And when he did not answer Saul, what did Saul do? 
Saul went and sought a medium. Old version of the Bible called her the witch of Endor. He was seeking guidance from the dead. He was looking for guidance through the medium because he wanted to speak to the prophet Samuel, the one in whom the word of God came. King Saul had been rejected as king. God had forsaken him. And we saw in chapter 28 he hit a very new low in his life, violating the clear command of the Torah, the Old Testament law, never to seek a medium, never to go to a channeler for the dead. It was considered an abomination, idolatry before the Lord. And if you turn back to chapter 28, I want you to see what God told Saul through the prophet. Chapter 28, verse 15, Samuel the prophet is there and he says to Saul, why are you disturbing me and bringing me up? And Saul answered, I'm in distress. The Philistines are warring against me. God has turned for me. He won't answer me anymore, either by prophet or dream. Therefore, I've summoned you. What should I do? And Samuel told him, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and became your enemy? Chapter 28, verse 17. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you, Saul, did not obey the voice of the Lord, did not carry out his fierce wrath against the Malachites. Therefore, the Lord, he says it several times, has done this thing to you this day. Chapter 28, verse 15. Moreover, the Lord will give, this is important. Chapter 28, verse 15, Samuel speaking the word of God to King Saul. Moreover, also, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons shall be with me. In other words, in Sheol, dead. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistines. Chapter 31 is that fulfillment. The word of God, the promise of God. Yes, in destruction and in desecration. If you remember, chapter 28 ends and then picks up in chapter 31. In between, we've been talking about David. So it's not strictly chronological. Remember, he goes to Endor, uh, Saul goes to Endor, and then we jump back into David's life. And although this is a very, very difficult time, we said last week, and it's very important that you see this, at the same time David is responding to the word of God, is, is obeying the word of God, is trusting in the Lord, seeking the Lord, conquering the Amalekites, the same people God told Saul to destroy, but now we see David defeating them. He, he remember last week, he's, he's, he's taking back in which the Amalekites took from Ziklag, the city of Ziklag, and the contrast can't be any more glaring than this. David is listening, responding, obeying, trusting, finding his guidance in the word of the Lord, while Saul is getting killed. God has not spoken to him. God has turned his back on him. God has torn the kingdom from him. Very hard chapter. Very hard chapter for the nation of Israel. Very difficult time. It appears from the ground view, from, from a worldly perspective, from the earthly perspective, that God has lost, that somehow he's been outwitted, outgunned. But that couldn't be further from the truth. This chapter is about the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God, a display of his purposes and plans in the world, even with disaster. Disaster. 
particularly in redemption, to save, to rescue, to redeem sinners like you and me. This, chap- this chapter should teach us, as we look into it in a moment, this chapter should teach us, I'm going to lay it out there right now, that you and I as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ should never look at our outward circumstances, the circumstances surrounding you, and then think and believe that the story is over. It is not over. It is not over. The movie is not over. Even more importantly, don't walk out in the middle of the movie because God is doing something that you may not like or you may not see of any significance, importance, or how God is going to work it all out. God is sovereign. His plans and purposes will come to pass, and he is a good God, a loving God. He's not finished with this world. He's not finished with you. He's not finished with those that you love. And we'll see that clearly. Number one, the destruction of the king. Saul is dead. Then the desecration of the man. They will take his body and desecrate it. But then we will see the devotion of the people of God and how they respond. And of course, we'll end with the gospel and communion. So let's see the first thing. And verse one gives us the scene. It's from chapter 28. If you remember, they were in Shunem. Now we see he goes to Endor. Chapter 28, and then the very next day, we see the Philistines are fighting Israel. The men of Israel fled, verse 1, from the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Again, chapter 28 sets up that scene. We're picking it back up in chapter 31. There's only two other times in 1 Samuel where the Israelites are fleeing. Two times. First one, if you remember, was in Gath, if you remember, excuse me, it was in the valley of Elah because they were running from the giant Goliath and they were fleeing. They were afraid. We know a young shepherd boy came with a sling and a rock and took care of that. But I want to submit to you this morning, and you will notice, and you can go home and study this for yourself or talk about it in your community groups, that the fleeing of Israel from the Philistines is more indicative of what took place in 1 Samuel chapter 4. You remember what happened there? And why it happened. It was a time when the people did not yet have a king. Remember, they were going from a theocracy, a people governed and ruled by God, to a monarchy, a people governed and ruled by a king. This is before they had a king. It was a time in which the people of God, rather than trusting and getting their guidance and leadership and their victory through God, their king, they brought the Ark of the Covenant in. If you remember, it's sort of like a rabbit's foot. Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant in and do whatever we wish. We're not, we're not going to trust in God. We've got, we got the Ark. And not only did the Philistines defeat Israel and Israel fled, but they, remember, they, they captured the Ark of the Covenant. And what did they do with it? They put it in their worship center. Remember that? Do you remember what else was in that incident? Eli, the priest and judge of Israel, he too was a leader of Israel. He too was rejected of God. He failed to honor the Lord above his sons, his worthless sons. And God told him that on a certain day, guess what? Your worthless sons will be killed. And what happened? God's word was fulfilled. Both his sons were killed. And if you remember, Eli falls over and, and, and breaks his neck and dies when he hears about the ark was taken. And then the Philistines, they enter into the worship, their worship center to go get the ark of the covenant. Do you remember what they found? Their God, small g, Dagon, face down on the ground, the ark of the Lord before, before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon was broken off, and just his body was there. It was a disaster. 
It was in, and in that disaster for Israel that Israel says, we want a king. It was after chapter 4, into, cha- into the following chapter, they're like, we want a king to fight our battles. We want a king to go before us and do what all other kings do for us. And they said, we want that king. Guess who their king is? He be- he's Saul. And this tragedy that's happening here is, is an ironic tragedy. We see the last chapter of Samuel is like Samuel chapter 4. This time they don't lose the ark. This time they lose the king. And once again, Israel's failed leader will fall and his sons will fall. The leader is taken out. He's been rejected. His sons will die. And the Philistines... Their God's head was cut off, and now they're going to cut off the Israelite king. Tragedy. Tragedy. Flipping the script, tragedy. And remember from chapter 29, just, well, let me just mention this as well. In chapter 29, David is in the middle of the Philistine territory, and the Israelite army is heading south, excuse me, north. Israelite army, let me back up. David is with the Philistines. David and the Philistines. David is rejected by the Philistines. He says, go home. David heads south, and the Philistine army head north. That's what's going on now. And God providentially takes David out of the picture because this takes place. This incident will take place, and David is not forced to either fight with the Philistines or more likely turn on the Philistines. David is hundreds of miles away fighting the Amalekites. It's important you see this because it was God's will, spoken by God's word, that the fight between Israel and the Philistines in chapter 31, where the Philistines win and Saul dies in the battle, is because God has spoken it to be. As disastrous as it is, verse 2, the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan. We haven't heard from Jonathan in a while. Abinadab, Malchushua, the sons of Saul. And don't pass over that same, excuse me, Jonathan is dead. He's the first reported death in this casualty. The faithful man of God. The one who, who defended David. The one who came to David's rescue. The one who made a covenant with David. The covenant close friend of David is dead. He, remember, he even said to David, let the kingdom be yours. Take my armor. Yours is the kingdom. I, I know God has given you this kingdom. I think he was one of the first ones that noticed or, or said so that the kingdom was taken from Saul and given to David, not his son. His son was in line for the kingship. And you see David in his loyalty to his friend David and saying, you're the next king. But notice here, notice where Jonathan is. Jonathan is with his father. He's loyal to his dad even to the end. And dies on the battlefield with his rebellious, contentious father. But as with any man or woman of faith, what seems to be a tragedy is really, in the words of the apostle, gain. That a a godly woman loves the Lord Jesus pass on Monday, doing the funeral here on Tuesday. Philippians chapter 121 is our comfort. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Jonathan closed his eyes on this earth, opened his eyes in glory. 
What seems like tragedy is gain. I honestly don't think we could say that we could be that assured with his father Saul. The battle pressed hard, verse 3. The archers found him and wounded him and wounded him. And Saul said to his bearer, draw your sword, thrust it through. I don't want these uncircumcised to come and mistreat me. And his armor bearer said in verse 4, no, I I don't want to do this. He feared greatly, therefore took his own sword and fell upon it. The king is no fool to the ancient customs of his day. We're dealing with wounded and captured soldiers on the battle. I I did some reading and some some of the reading I did this week the stuff that they used to do to wounded soldiers, I, your imagination could never foster that kind of torture. And just as Eli, a failed priest for 40 years, died by falling off literally his chair or the chair, so Saul, king, 40 years, Acts chapter 13, dies by falling on his or in the sword, on his sword, and dies. Now, not all self-inflicted death is, is on, the, on the same playing field, we would say. A soldier who, who in the midst of a battle, jumps on, on a grenade in order to spare, in order to save the lives of others, we would say is very differently, but that's not what we see happening here. And let me say this, I, uh, suicide is a, is a very arduous and violent way of death, but it is not the unforbi- unforgivable Sin as the ancient Roman Catholic Church taught. There are, there are cases of those who are mentally unbalanced, emotionally distraught, fighting deep and hard battles that take their life. I've known some. King Saul is definitely a selfish man. He, 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 although he's afraid of what may happen, but it's always been about himself. It, it is wrong. It, it, is, it is against the will of God to commit or to, to help others die and assist them in death. When, when we face death, and, 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 and some of you are facing it, I haven't faced it in that sense, uh, but our, 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 our hope is that we're, we're looking to Jesus, we're getting empowered by his spirit, we're not gonna take our own life, we're gonna, we're gonna trust in the Lord, but listen, any true and genuine child of God has been born again, purchased by the blood of Jesus for whatever reason, takes their own life, they can have absolute confidence They're in glory because the blood of Jesus Christ covers all sins, past, present, and future. I had an opportunity to speak at Grapefield Church. I go out there sometimes to teach your school. On this issue, euthanasia, suicide, and the teachers there asked me to come. and And I taught the class for quite a while. And I remember one student raised their hand. A young girl said to me, Pastor, if you sin... When you die, will you go to heaven? If you're in sin, when you commit a sin and you die, will you go to heaven? I think my response kind of shook her. I said to her, the chances of me sinning when I die is really good. I sure hope so. I believe so. Yes. It's not about what I did. It's about Jesus has done. The narrator doesn't get into the morals of it. But 1 Chronicles chapter 10 is such an interesting passage of Scripture. You have to look at it now. I'll read it. 1 Chronicles 10, 13. So Saul died, King Saul, for his breach of faith, it says the Chronicles. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord. He disobeyed God. 
And he consulted a medium seeking guidance. He, Saul, did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord, listen, the Lord put Saul to death and turned the king over to David, the son of Jesse. Do I need to read that again? The Lord put him to death and turned the king over to David, the son of Jesse. From the perspective of the chronicle, God was doing this. This was, this was the way and the will of God. And we say this all the time, right? You've got to have a category in your brain that God is sovereign, separate from sin, but sovereign and bending all things, all purposes, all plans for his glory, and we are responsible. And we're not, we're two tracks running along each other, right? We can't figure that all out because we're not God. But that's what the scriptures teach. Man is responsible, God is sovereign. What we learn, though, is here is that Saul's problem was not the army of the Philistines. In fact, Saul's problem wasn't even Goliath back in the day. Saul's problem was Saul. The point is not the means by which he took his life, but his lack of faith, lack of trust, and his failure to love the Lord God God. God could have conquered his enemies, and, but Saul refused to trust the Lord. At every turn, when, when Saul had an opportunity to trust God, he trusted himself. And that's something we should learn from. We need to trust God no matter what the circumstances are. No, no matter where you find yourself, you have to trust God. Don't hide, as Saul did, behind some religious veil. All right? So he's good at re- religiosity. What we say is saying and doing things that look religious without a humble relationship with the Lord. Every time he was given an opportunity to, to follow the path of God, he chose to follow his own. He was never convinced. I don't think Saul, so. if you read the story, I don't think he was ever convinced that God was completely and totally trustworthy. I don't think Saul ever came to the place where he saw God as satisfying. I think Saul saw God as useful, but not beautiful. He wanted to use God to make his life work. It always, God just wasn't enough. God wasn't enough for Saul. He lacked that complete satisfaction in God. And we must know, listen, we must delight in God. We must be convinced by the Spirit, through the Word, by the Gospel, of his love for us and grasp the value of that love as seen in the gospel and let that penetrate every day into our souls. Saul also never learned to repent. Oh, he did a lot of crying. He did a lot of religious performances. <laughs> he, met wittily, he, wept wittily, uh, he wept bitterly over his sins, but you know, you never see him really turn from his sin and trust the Lord. A lot of confession, no repentance. A lot of activity, but no real dealing with the root issue of idolatry. And the fruit of genuine repentance, family, that we don't see in Saul, a turning from sin, a turning to God, is trust in God, a complete trust and satisfying, a satisfaction in God alone, which leads to surrender. Not conditional, but unconditional surrender. Listen to what Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 7. For godly grief produces a repentance not to be regretted. A godly grief produces a repentance not to be regretted, leading to salvation, but worldly grief produces death. 
Worldly sorrow, godly sorrow, both cry over sin, but only one leads to salvation. That, that godly sorrow grieves because it has hurt the eternal, loving, kind, and good God. But worldly sorrow reacts to the consequences, being squeezed. It arises out of fear of getting caught or, or, or shame for what others may think, out of self-pity maybe, until we're ready to return back to God in a humble way. The most ordinate demonstration of emotions will be utterly useless, really is. Not that repentance doesn't involve the heart or the emotion, it does. But repentance, genuine repentance that we don't see in Saul, results in obedience, not conditional obedience, and not partial obedience, but a sense of your will, your ways, no matter what the circumstances are. And then after, we don't see that in Saul. We don't see him satisfying God. We don't see him trusting God. We don't see him repenting in God. And then verse 5, his armor bearer falls on his sword as well. Loyal maybe, fear maybe, we don't know. Verse 7, after the, day, uh, the, the sons are dead, Saul is dead, the armor bearer is dead, the armor bearer is dead. Verse 7, and when the men of Israel were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and Saul and his sons were dead. They abandoned their cities and fled. I mean, just see the picture, man. They were all flying out of there. And the Philistines said, okay, good. Got a place to live. Thank y'all. See ya. And they lived in them. All this took place. Hard and difficult. But all of it took place as a fulfillment of God's word. It's a fulfillment of God's word. The word spoken through Samuel. Just as the word of God announced the end of Hophni and Phinehas, that's Eli's son, so the word of God is fulfilled. Israel may fall. Israel may fall and come crushing down in Gilboa. Saul may fall and come crushing down on his sword, but the word of God does not fall. The word of God does not fail. Now, I, I have to admit that what happens to the king by the word of God may not be very comforting. You may say, wow, this is, this is, I mean, he got family, his family, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. Not very comforting, but it can be. It, this can be comforting to you, and it can be comforting to me. Because in the dark times of Israel, in the dark times and hard times of, of the life of God's people, both Old Testament and New Testament, God is fulfilling his holy and wise plans. They're, they're, God is never doing anything outside of his purposes. It, it falls within the boundaries of what he has already declared. Ralph Davis very wisely said, if Yahweh, God, if Yahweh's word of judgment on Saul is true, and it is, we can be equally assured of his word of promise to David. In other words, if God spoke what was to happen to Saul happened, then what God spoke, the promise to David, will happen. He says, in darkness or light, what matters is having a God who speaks a true and faithful word, end quote. Your comfort this morning in the sovereignty of God, your comfort this morning in the providence of God, even if it's a dark place, your comfort this morning is the dependability, dependability and the, uh, of the graciousness, the mercy the patience of God who always, always, always keeps his promises and always, always acts according to his goodness and loving character. Always. Destruction of the king. 
It's the longest point, but it's very important. Number two, the desecration of the man. The next day, maybe it was night when it all ended, I don't know. The next day, the Philistines came to strip the slain. They found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers through the land, to the land of the Philistines. To carry the good news, mark that, to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. Verse 10, they put his armor in the temple of their Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Custom of stripping, you know, uh, uh, defeated and dead soldiers is common in those days. They would take the loot from them. Obviously, the biggest prize here is a dead king, right? God's ruler's dead, the king is dead. The kingdom of God has been stifled, so they thought. The Philistines, the God of the Philistines, small g, has won. No. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God is in control. No matter who wins the boxing match, God is sovereign. I say boxing match because it's just when I was studying this, it reminded me of Evander Holyfield against Mike Tyson. I wanted to punch the TV. The Muslim is fighting the Christian. I'm like, really? Yeah, God's sovereignty is dependent on two guys in a ring. I, I, we'll see who wins in the end. Like, ridiculous. Drives me crazy. I just thought I'd share that with you. But anyway. <laughs> yes, the Philistines momentarily conquered God's king and God's people, and they cut off Saul's head. Just as David cut off Goliath. And stripped him of his armor. And what's sad about this is we've seen Saul in the past being stripped of his armor. He tried to take his armor and give it to David. Remember when he first fought Goliath. Back in chapter 19, he's on his way, uh, Saul's on his way to kill David. And finds himself walking into a a prophetic uh, school going on. And he rips his clothes off and tears off his armor. and, And he lay naked prophesying the spirit of God that came upon him. Most recently, if you remember when he's in Endor in chapter 28, what does he do? He takes off his royal garments and puts on other garments. Who knows what they were? We don't know. But it was to disguise himself as being the king. Because the medium, the witch, knew that the king had taken all the mediums out of the land. And now, his royal armor stripped for the final time. Hmm. Body of Israel lay naked on a hillside, completely crushed. Verse 9. What could they do? They send messages throughout the land of the Philistines to carry what? The good news to the house of their idol and to the people. The good news. Yes, that's the Hebrew word for our Greek word, evangelon. Our English word, gospel. It was to report the gospel, the good news. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. For unto you this day, a dead man in the city of Galboa, a Savior, a Christ. He was Christ that anointed. That's what Christ means. This shall be a sign for you and for all the people. You'll find his dead body wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in the house of the idols. How much more gloomy can you get? If you're here to thinking, wow, I wanted an uplifting message. Sorry. This is why we do expository preaching. Nobody wakes up and goes, let's talk about King Saul getting his head cut off today. That sounds like fun. But I will say this. This passage of Scripture teaches us at least what good news actually means. If we could take something good 
would take that out of it. Because good news in the Hebrew and the Greek is the announcement of something earth-shattering. It's news to people. That day there was a good news. There was a gospel for the Philistines. A good news, a gospel for their idols. They did not announce good advice. They did not give good military counsel. They declared something historically true. And, and make no mistake about it, when the Philistine land and their idols and their temples all heard the good news, it was meant to bring them what? Sadness? No, joy and excitement to the Philistines. The king is dead. The people of God are dead. The king of God is dead. It was clear, was it not, that the gods of the Philistine had at last defeated the God of Israel. Do you think that all those who heard the good news said, oh, shh, don't tell nobody? Keep this to yourself? Do you think all the heralders, after they proclaimed the good news, were afraid to tell their neighbors, their friends, their their, their, their were co-workers of the good news? No, they didn't. I bet you they didn't. They were shouting about the good news to the street, in the street. Good news is meant to be declared and shared and acted upon. Let that sink in. What they do after the news? What they always do. They impaled them, right? <laughs> Appropriately displayed, verse 10, headless corpse impaled on the wall. Subject of horror, disgust, desecration. And, and it, from what I read in ancient times, even if two armies battle against each other, they would strip them, they would take the gold or whatever it was, but then they would give many times a de- at least a decent burial. Unless you had so much disrespect towards someone, and that's what you see here. It was a good day to be a Philistine. And you know, the good news of the Philistines is the good news for many of us still even today. God is dead. We'll do what we want. We'll decide for ourselves what's right and wrong. We will will live our life accordingly to our own desires. We will be our own Lord and our own saviors. We will have our idols and enjoy them. We will live for our own satisfaction and trust only in the things that are important to us. It's the gospel of the Philistines. Even like when Jesus died, the national hope of Israel had been broken. Do you see that although God is mocked, God's honor, God's integrity has been lost, we must view this story, this scene, in the confines of redemptive history. This is God's word fulfilled. God is in control. You need to hear that. Unquestionably, categorically, yes, in control. In death, in destruction and desecration, God is in control. That's the point. When bad and terrible things, when dreadful things happen, we act to say, where are you, Lord? And God is there. He's in the midst. He's fulfilling his plans and his purposes. And sometimes, and I do this too, and I'm not calling you out on this because I do it. Sometimes when the good provident hand of God, when the good things work out in our life, we say what? God is good. And it's true. But I think, if you think, 
that we are inferring or inferring that God is not good if things didn't work out. We've got to be careful because God is good all the time. All the time? Come on, Ash, come on. No matter how horrendously difficult it may be, God's purposes and redemptions will stand. And that's the only real good news that matters. We're all going to die. You're welcome. We'll suffer. We'll have hardship. But what matters most is eternal life with God. It was Woody Allen who said, it's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Let me read this promise to you as we move on. Let, let me read this promise from God's word. And I, and I just want you to absorb this in your soul. I just want you to listen as if God is speaking to you because he is. Let, let, let your heart be filled by God's spirit for his glory. The ultimate satisfaction of your hearts rest in Jesus in this passage. Second Corinthians chapter 4. Knowing, Paul writes, that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Hear that. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends more and more to people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction. And Paul has been greatly afflicted. He calls it a light momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension as we look not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are non-seen are eternal. The Philistines, for a moment, I don't want you to be like them, forgot the lesson that God was teaching them. Remember, they stole the Ark of the Covenant and God brought plagues and boils and rats into their community. Sometimes we forget that every knee, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right? God is faithful. The ultimate victory belongs to the Lord in destruction and in desecration. And look at the devotion of God's people. Verse 11. Jabed Gilead hears what's going on. And the valiant men went all night. Took the body down, took the sons down, the body from Bethshane. They came back to Jabesh and burned the bodies there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted for seven days. And here, what you see is God's people hear of the destruction. They hear of the desecration. And because of their kindness and devotion, heroism, these valiant men take a trek, 20, 25 miles boat round trip. And remove the rotten bodies from the wall. This is for cars. This is for like, you know, you know, home vehicles. They show great devotion, great uh, um, courage to Saul's family. You say, well, what is that all about? Well, chapter 11. You remember? Jabesh Gilead was attacked by the Ammonites. And they said to them, listen, we're, we're, we're taking you out. And we're going to gouge out your right eye. Remember, they, they couldn't fight without the right eye. And Jabesh Gilead is like, uh, give us a little time, okay? We'll get right back to you whether we'll surrender or not. And they send out a, a cry for help. And this is before Saul's destruction or, or spiraling out of control. Saul hears the word that they are under besiege. And Saul 
Remember, cuts the oxen, sends it out, and says, you're all going to be dead like this oxen if you don't show up. 330,000 men show up under Saul's leadership and deliver Jabesh, uh, Jabesh Gilead. Jabesh Gilead. And now, what's so interesting is Saul, in the beginning of his reign, began with the deliverance of Jabesh Gilead, and now here at the end of his reign, Jabesh Gilead is delivering him. You see that? They remove the bodies and they burn it. Uh, commentators, I, I, I think most commentators say they, they burn the bodies. They weren't trying to bring more desecration to the people, to, to Saul and his sons. They were worried about the decomposed body. They were worried about plagues and different infections. And then they bury him under the tamarisk tree, which is interesting because remember we saw Saul with his spear under the tamarisk, pee, uh, under the tamarisk tree, 1 Samuel 22. Eventually, we'll see in chapter 22 of 2 Samuel, the bones are removed, and he's buried with his family. But listen, the death of Saul, the death of Saul, like any human death, has its own specific tragedy. And yet we see here in Saul's death a very special tragedy. He was the Lord's anointed. He was the one that Israel chose. He was ultimately the one God said, yes, you can reign over my people. And, and Saul began with, with, with such glimpses of, of potential. Chapter 11, God's purpose was for him to use and, and to, to empower Saul to rescue God's people from their enemies, to rescue them and give and bring security to the land of Israel. He was equipped, he was empowered by the Spirit for the task before him. Do you see the parallel stories between Saul and Adam? God creates Adam to rule over God's good creation in the Garden of Eden. He was given a glimpse, we, we see this book, this great potential possibilities of the man, Adam. He's breathed into, created in the Imago Dei. And yet, both men, both Adam and Saul, become undone by disobedience to the word of God. Rebellion against the Almighty, cosmic treason. And therefore, the tragedy of Saul's death should remind us of death in our own day. In our own human experience, like the tragic Saul, what we might have been was undone by the disobedience to the word of God. But if you remember the story, in the midst of sin, in the midst of undoneness, in the midst of unraveling, when our first parents sinned against God, God speaks a promise. God confronts and says, I will. Chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis, Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, between your seed and her offspring. And God steps in and he says, I will put enmity. Enmity with God, it sounds like a problem. Actually, it's grace. God speaks grace into the midst of chaos. And he says to the enemy, you think you have them. You think they're yours. You think they'll belong to you forever, but I am going to redeem. And God confronts. And then God makes a commitment. He says, not only will I put enmity between you and your offspring, he says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's good news. Genesis traces us from the offspring of Adam to Seth to Noah to Abraham to Isaac, Jacob. We open up the New Testament and the offspring of promise of Genesis 3.15 is the real king, the true and better king, and his name is Jesus Christ. 
He is what the Bible calls the second Adam. And although he was seriously harmed, he will fatally wound Satan. He will get bit, but he will destroy the enemy. He will have victory over all the enemies. And God speaks in the midst of death, in the midst of sin, uh, just destruction and separation, and I will repair, I will forgive, I will restore everything. Family, that's the good news of the gospel. That is good, that evil will not rule forever, that death will not rule forever, that the offspring of the woman will fatally strike the serpent's head. That's the promise. And he will crush the enemies, he will forgive sins, he will restore not only mankind, he will restore the entire world. It will go back to what it was, actually be better than it was. God declared that the penalty for sin was death. He defines sin, and he gives us what the consequence of our sin is, and that's death. And God gave Saul time to repent. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has given you a chance to repent, which means turning from being your own Savior, your own Lord, trusting in yourself, and humbly turning and trusting in Christ, believing on him, relying upon him, yielding to him, and believing on him as Savior and Lord of your life. You and I can be assured today that God's going to deal with sin. You and I can be assured today that God is going to deal with you. Either you will carry out your own sentence of death because of your sin, or you can trust in the promise of God and that his name is Jesus Christ. For many years later, the Christ, the true anointed one, like Saul, defeated by his enemies, so it seemed, He too was handed over to the nations to be abused. His body was also hung as a public object of horror and disgust. People crucified, ripped off their clothes. They were hung nakedly, not not in private, for the whole world to see. In Jesus' case too, there was someone who cared for him, took his body down, and honored him in burial, if you remember. Joseph of Maradeus and Nicodemus. The similarities between the death of Saul and the death of Jesus are meant to serve a highlight of the antithetical differences, the complete opposite of one man's death. Saul died because he did not fear the Lord and serve him. Jesus died as our righteousness, a faithful one in complete obedience to the Father. Saul was like every other king, fallible, as David will be. Jesus Christ was the perfect king. Jesus Christ, the night before he was betrayed, prayed to the Father, Father, let thy will be done. The night before Saul's death, what does he do? He seeks a medium. Jesus Christ blessed many through his death and the only blessing we get because of Saul's death is because he makes a way for David who becomes the king and his son will become Jesus the Christ. Jesus did not die to save himself from pain as Saul did. He endured and he died the full wrath of pain and punishment for our sin. His death is not a tragedy, a failure on the part of God, but a magnificent sacrifice for us all. Now, you need to hear this. We're going to go to communion in about one minute. You need to know, listen, let's wrap this up. In order to trust God, in order to trust that God is good in the midst of hardship, we need to see that Saul was adamant in his pursuit of seizing the kingdom, as seizing the throne, seizing power. Jesus willingly gave up his power. Jesus is the king that gave up his power, stepped out of glory. King sits on thrones. Thrones are the place of power. 
Crosses are the summit of powerlessness and helplessness. Jesus laid down his life as a sacrifice for others rather than taking it himself. And the more you see that, the more you drive that deep into your heart that your king has gone to such a degree to make you his treasure, the more you will trust and know his goodness in the midst of hardship toward you to make you his treasure. That's what this communion is about. This communion is about remembering This communion is about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the greater king. And because he came, as as we'll celebrate, the bread represents his body that was broken, hung, beaten, and just disgraced on the cross. The cup represents his blood that was shed, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And we look to Jesus, and we see all that he has done. We've seen all that he's done. And the only thing that God asks us of us, you and I, is that we are confessing our sins. We are repenting, willing to turn from our sins. We're not perfect. We're not coming and saying we're perfect. We're taking communion. We're coming and saying, I'm broken, and I need forgiveness. Lord, thank you. And the band's going to sing. The band's going to play. We're going to be confessing. We're going to be repenting. But then we always come to celebrate. It's not about you. It's about Jesus Jesus paid the way. This is not a king's chapel table. It's not a Baptist table, a Presbyterian table. This is the Lord's table. If you're a follower of Christ, come. If you're not, the scripture says, do not partake. This is just for the family. We're glad you're here. We love you. But this communion table is for the children of God. The band's gonna come. Come. We'll pray. And we'll ask God, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, the gospel is the reason that we can trust you. Father, All your plans and purposes are good. All your wise and holy ways are good. Lord, we may not know tomorrow, but we know you. And Lord, we see all that you have done for us to make us yours in the gospel. That is enough to show us the eternal love that you have for us. And now we pray as your children, as we take of the cup, as we take of the bread and the cup, Lord, that we would surrender completely. Those things in our lives that we're holding on to, we'll surrender them to you. For you are worthy of our trust. You are worthy of our trust. Come, help us to continue to worship you in spirit and truth, we pray.